everyone. Welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy. I'm here with my co-host Brian, who likes to sometimes be called Brain when Spellcheck plays up on him. And uh, you, you, there's no point nodding, Brian. They can't see you. Yeah, but I didn't want to interrupt. I didn't want to be a rude prick like you sometimes when you just jump in and, and get all bloody needy. But now I'm here. You are never going to let me forget that one, are you? Ever, ever. But that's all right. Fine, fine. So, hey, today we have got a really cool guest coming in who I'm going to introduce in just a moment. But before I do, I wanted to just say we're nearly at the end of the year. We're nearly at the end of season three. We are. It's been it's been a massive season. And for listeners, I mean, you, you would know that last year we crammed two seasons in. We, we did, what, 20 episodes per season. And this year we've done one big long year as a season. And I think about 30 episodes, something like that. We started off weekly and then we went, we're a little bit exhausted. So we went fortnightly, I think about halfway through the year. And I reckon we've landed on the formula, which works for us, which is fortnightly, isn't it, Troy? Yeah, I think so. I think you're 100% right there. Well, mate, I guess I just want to sort of reflect really quickly and just say it's been a long year with with a lot of this content. There's been a lot of stuff going on, you know, with the Hillsong trial and, and, and all, you know, Brian Houston and his Hillsong trial. And then, of course, all the different documentaries and stuff. And then, of course, we got nominated for an Australian Podcast Award. By the time this goes to air, we'll actually know whether we've won or not at least at the time of recording, we've, we got uh, nominated. So that's, that was kind of cool, you know, like just to be included in, in podcasts that are making a bit of a splash. Yeah, it was very cool. Actually, we, we were both pretty blown away. So it would be good to see if we actually win. We're up against, as people know, the likes of the Australian Broadcasting Commission, SBS, which is another national broadcaster and the Guardian. So we're up there with the big boys. We feel a little bit out of our depths, but uh, but hey, we're there for a reason, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be cool. So, I mean, by the time people are listening to this, they already know, so they're a step ahead of us, but we have no idea. Anyway, let's cut to our guest because it is a very, very interesting guest today that we've got. His name is David Ames, and he runs the Graceful Atheist Podcast, and he's been doing this a bit longer than we have, and so I'm sure he's got a lot of wisdom to throw our way and a lot of stories. So welcome, David. Welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Oh, thank you, guys. Really appreciate the invitation, and congratulations on third season and the nomination. That's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, thanks, mate. I've got a question for you right away. Is Were you a teenage fundamentalist? You know, I, I was prepared for that question, and it's interesting. I, I actually grew up in a nominally Christian home. Definitely, we talked about Jesus and we talked about God. It was, but it was very distant for me, and it's difficult for me to tell my story without mentioning that my mother had a drug and alcohol addiction that had affected everything about my life. And it was about when I turned seventeen, eighteen that uh, she came to me one day and said, uh, "Jesus told me to quit drinking," and I said, "Sure, sure, yeah, <laughs> that's great." <laughs> And she was clean and sober the next day and the day after that and the day after that. And she eventually handed me a Bible and I read through that Bible over approximately a year uh, on my own before I really stepped into church. Uh, what you could say is that I was a late teen uh, fundamentalist and definitely in my 20s. That, that's one of those classic conversion stories to, to fundamentalism, isn't it? That I had a drug or alcohol, I had mental health issues, I had something and... 
I think that's something that I think the church obviously grabs onto too, and they shove those people up the front and they go, look what Jesus has done for them. Is that something that happened to your mum as well? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, so again, we were relatively unchurched uh, and went church shopping shortly thereafter. And yes, she. I think there was a pull for her to be in the spotlight, which was something she was not interested in. <laughs> uh, and side story, I got kind of ignored, interestingly enough, until I landed with a, a youth group. I was too old at the time. I was probably 19 by then, but you know, thrown into leadership at that point. For, for myself. But yeah, a little, a little bit of that spotlight was on her for sure. She was very, you know, very interesting story. So the pastor was uh, real interesting. So what did that, what did that scene look like? Like before we get to, you were saying that you got thrown into leadership in a, in a youth group, but before that, what, what was the scene? What did it look like? Was it a, a Pentecostal type evangelical or, or what was it? Yeah. I think this is where we're going to have a fair amount to talk about because it was an Assemblies of God church. So Pentecostal. And if I reflect back on that time, we were looking for a church that had some passion to it, right? Like we were, we're not interested in a sedate, <laughs> you know, mostly older people uh, sitting, doing, staring quietly. We wanted something with, with some passion to it, but we went into it with complete ignorance. Like I had no idea what Pentecostalism was or, or charismatic. You know, I didn't know what those terms mean at the meant at the time. Uh, so it, by chance, we, we landed in an Assemblies of God church. You know, that was quite an experience to go from zero to 60 with people raising their hands and speaking in tongues and having words of wisdom and that kind of thing. And a lot of emotion, quite a bit of emotion. Well, brother, welcome home. Yes. <laughs> as, as you probably know, Brian and I did a stint in the Assemblies of God, and yeah, I was yeah. at one stage on the road to becoming an Assemblies of God pastor, as was Brian. We both went to Assemblies of God Bible colleges, although I don't know if you know that in Australia, under Brian Houston's leadership, they changed their name. The Assemblies of God became the Australian Christian Churches. It's a humble little name for just a very small cross-section of the church. Although when I say that, I think, well, the Catholics still refer to themselves as the universal church. So I don't think that the uh, the AOG was too bad. But yeah, we, they've changed their name. I won't say we because we're not there anymore, but they've changed their name now in Australia. I think they're still part of the Assemblies of God worldwide fellowship groupings, whatever they want to call right. it. Yeah, we're, we're AOG too. So high five, brother. Uh, yeah, and we have more in common because that, that the story of the youth pastor putting me into leadership is the positive of that. So there was a positive. The one positive was, again, family history of drug and alcohol, a lot of poverty. Uh, I like to point out that my grandparents saved me from the worst parts of poverty. But I mean, I had I had days where we ate cheese for dinner, right? Like <laughs> things like that. So no one had really been ever said you could probably go to college. So this youth pastor says to me. Hey, I went to this Assemblies of God Bible College. You could too. That's something that you you might want to look into. So about a year after stepping my foot in church, I was at I was at Bible College, <laughs> also associated with the Assemblies of God. So I had a very similar experience. How did that go for you? Because you know we often reflect on the fact that that was our both our our first foray into a tertiary education. At, so something after high school. It wasn't, it wasn't the greatest in terms of academia, but it certainly set some disciplines in our lives that we both went on to further study. We got what we call legitimate real degrees. So I, I think it did really draw out some of that good. It, it, did you have a similar experience or how did that work for you? 
Yeah, I I often joke that it was the best of times and the worst of times. So I met my now wife. I have some deep friendships from that time still, uh, even after my deconversion. I had professors who really cared about what I would call critical thinking. I don't know that they would have put it in those terms, but a focus on exegesis and hermeneutics in a way that ironically set the groundwork for my later deconversion. However, it was also the time where you're becoming an adult, you're trying to take on responsibility as, a, as, as an adult, and it was very infantilizing. You know, there was a curfew and sexual mores that were pretty limiting. And uh, looking back in hindsight, uh, although I did not go on to get a further degree, my, my degree is still church leadership, <laughs> a Bachelor of Arts in Church Leadership. I have been incredibly lucky career in the tech world that has taken me out of poverty, let's say. Uh, but when I look back, I loved education. I absolutely loved it. And so there's, there is some bittersweetness there of, I wish I would have gone to like, you know, a state school and, and you know, had an opportunity to ex- expand my, my education. Let's have a little segue too around tech. We all realised that we're using the Shaw MV7 uh, microphone. So Shaw, if you are listening, we are still up for that sponsorship deal. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and 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 now now that we're nominated in the Australian Podcast Awards, maybe they are listening. So tell us a little bit about your your journey as a, a youth pastor. Like, how did how did that look? And you're fairly new also into the scene. Like you've only been there for a year or whatever you've landed in that church and all of a sudden you're in leadership. So you must have demonstrated some of those classic Pentecostal attributes that get you there, the charisma, the ability to talk, to connect, to bring people in. How did that look? You know, I had read my Bible, which uh, turns out was uh, was uh, special, was re- unique. Uh, and so I immediately had something to say. Uh, and as will be common in our discussion today, the theme of grace will come up over and over again. My first experience, because of my mom, of any spirituality of any kind, was really 12 steps. And, and that was a, an atmosphere of acceptance and loving people through very difficult times, in particular people like my mom, who did things that deeply hurt other people. And what I saw was uh, what I then gained the theological uh, background to say was grace. And so I felt like the, the church was missing that. They had forgotten, they had forgotten grace. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's, that's clearly what God wants me to, to teach his people. So yes, I mean, I guess I was charismatic enough. Ironically, we, we were in a you know, relatively small town, 20,000, 30,000 people, something like that. Uh, but we started a Christian uh, variety show that took off. Uh, so, uh, so even though the church that we were in was medium-sized, 300 people or so, uh, I had chances where I spoke in front of 2,000 people, you know, lots of kids uh, you know, from all around our region. And I, as I went to Bible college, I would come back and MC for the variety show. And that was kind of a constant back and forth. Uh, I was driving home to, to do that. So it was, it was a wild time. What's a Christian variety show? Exactly. <laughs> Good question. Is that like Christians got talent? <laughs> you know, at the time, even even at the time, I was thinking, ah, we, you know, we should have our own something other than just copying the secular music and secular dance and that kind of thing. But that's what we were doing. We did a thing called Human Videos, which probably you've never heard of, but 
acting out Christian songs. So at the time, somebody like Carmen was really big or DC Talk, right? And so a bunch of kids would have a dance routine and semi-act out the video, quote unquote, of the story of the song. And you would be surprised this was very popular, like there was a lot of people. I don't think we'd be surprised at all because that sounds like everything that we ever saw in terms of Christian performances on a on a Sunday night or at least a Saturday night back in our day. But I have a question for you. Did you ever do anything for Carmen's The Third Heaven? Do you remember when Carmen did that whole one about going to heaven and he had like a near-death experience? You know, I I don't re- I don't recall specifically a lot of that. I've mem- I flushed out of my memory. So. <laughs> but no, I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, Our listeners would definitely be familiar with that was something that Troy and I, it took us to to heaven. We'd sit there with the lights off, may or may not have held hands and listened to Carmen's Third Heaven. But what I I saw when you, you were saying what that show involved was definitely a bunch of teenagers acting out DC talks, I don't want your sex for now. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, purity culture god bless that that's that sounds insane though that you, you start this christian so i love how it's a christian focused one but that's enormous in a town of twenty thousand or whatever you've got two thousand people rocking up so you got 10 percent. was that used as an uh, i guess a tool to bring people into the church was that the reason for it or was it just a creative outlet yeah so i, I do want to be clear that it wasn't my leadership here, like it was a, a another youth pastor, uh, and that was kind of his vision, and I was along for the ride. And it was not just our town; it was all the surrounding towns to get to that those bigger numbers. But being the sponsor church for that that variety show brought a lot of people to the church itself, and so I think the the leadership of the church was was happy with that because we were bringing people in. We were very the youth group. And this other youth pastor and I were very evangelistic. That was the whole purpose of the variety show was to bring souls to Jesus. So lots, lots of altar calls and, uh, you know, soft music in the background. It sounds a lot like a small town youth alive rally, Brian. That's what it sounds like to me. That's what we used to call them in Australia. We'd have these big things called youth alive rallies and we'd have regional ones and state ones. And it sounds like this was a, a smaller version of that. But I was just thinking, Brian was saying it was, you, maybe you called it Christians Got Talent. I was going to suggest you call it Christian Idol, but then I thought, no, that would take away from the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I also heard you say that you were serving someone else's vision. That's a very AOG Pentecostal yeah. type thing as well. Yeah, come and yes. serve my vision, then you can have your own. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Come, come and let us control you. And then later on, you can control others. Yeah. Yeah. For sure, that whole experience, like when I actually finished Bible college and came back, like like on staff, quote unquote, you know, it was below poverty wages. It was, it, you know, I had very little, I got to speak often, but like uh, I had very little actual say in the direction that the, the ministries went. And, uh, and it was very relatively painful experience all the way around. And I left burnt out and as well as having a relationship with a, an, another adult who that was consensual, but that was frowned upon, left in disgrace, as it were. I wish that I could say that was the when I started to deconvert, but I really didn't. Uh, Twenty years go by, really, before before I start to deconstruct and ultimately deconvert. 
So David, being in Assemblies of God Church, were you the sort of person that would move in, as we say, here's the language, right? Move in words of wisdom, words of knowledge, spiritual gifts? Yes. Some some people would. You know, I, I like to be really honest, brutally honest about what I felt at the time. And I was fascinated by the Holy Spirit and how that affected people, how it affected me. But I also didn't want to fabricate it. I was obsessed with it being real and, and honest. So I became fairly early on uncomfortable with the way that words of wisdom always seemed to fit whatever that person actually wanted, right? It really seemed very convenient for whatever that person needed uh, to happen for in their lives or, or, or even in some cases, political elements of the church. And I started to be just lightly skeptical of that. And so I was very careful about doing so myself. I, I, I was cognizant of not saying, when I spoke, God told me X, Y, Z. Uh, I was very much expositional out of, out of the Bible. This is what the Bible says, is the, the direction that my personal ministry took at the time. And did you speak in tongues yourself? I did, yes. Yeah. Can, can you tell me about the time that you received that gift? Have, have you reflected on that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We could spend the rest of the time talking about what that means. So again, I was not Pentecostal growing up, got to the church. Obviously speaking in tongues is a huge deal for Assemblies of God. It was my first even hearing about it. I, again, I was obsessed with this thing being real. I wasn't willing to just start making syllables. I needed this to be a, a real thing. And, uh, you know, probably months go by. Uh, and I'm talking to, I know it's unclear here, but I started with one youth pastor who I, I really feel like was a legitimate mentor to me. He's the one who said you could go to Bible college. The other person is the person who had the vision for the variety show. They're two different people. The one who was much more of a mentor to me, you know, we would have these conversations, you know, like, it's okay. It's not a big deal. It'll happen or it won't. Uh, so ultimately I'm driving uh, to work one day and I'm having, you know, I'm praying, you know, God, I really want, I really want this. and very hyped emotionally, just, you know, really intense emotional experience. And, and I did, I did start speaking in tongues again, almost, you know, within a very short period of time, I still felt like I have full control over this, this, you know, this still feels a little bit like me doing this. Um, so there was, there was some level of doubt there still, but it was a legitimate part of my, my Christian experience for a, a good number of years. We definitely do want to get to the the work that you do today, and certainly how the grace, graceful atheist came about. Obviously, you've spoken about the importance of grace, and that's something you saw missing in your Christian experience, or your, certainly the church you were in. But what you were saying is that a twenty year period, you you've left the church in disgrace, obviously in a sexual relationship with someone else that was frowned upon um, because it was done outside of marriage. Yeah. Gasp, God forbid. (laughs) But, um, you know, that has happened. You've got 20 years. Take us on a a, a bit of a a 20-year trip of what happened through that period and how did you get to that point of deconversion and how did your deconversion play out? Yeah. I I will try to do this, the fast version of this. Uh, So the... My wife, who I'm married to now, uh, I, who I met in college, we didn't actually get married then. Uh, it was after this experience of leaving in disgrace. Uh, she and I got reconnected to with, with one another. We had both done ministry in one form or another, and we were both burnt out. 
And that was actually what brought us together, ironically. Uh, we got married and, you know, in the first for a few years, we were kind of church shopping, trying to find a place to land. I was really, uh, this is when I first became cognizant of just the grace. I have I'll, one more story about Bible college. I had a professor of theology who was all about grace and again, a huge mentor in my life. And I was looking for that in, in the churches we were shopping for and, and not finding it. Uh, we landed on a church that I think was, you know, decent, uh, and, but not great. <laughs> uh, and we had kids and in the process of raising them, uh, and actually having bright precocious children who would read parts of the Bible, I started to be more and more uncomfortable, uh, as they got to the age where it was kind of expected that they would be baptized. We started to go through that process and I started to realize that I felt deeply uncomfortable with that. Like, uh, you know, I'm talking like nine or 10 years old and that felt like really wrong to me. That's way too young. I started to become really uncomfortable with praying out loud, which again, in a Christian family is the expectations, the father's going to pray over their children, that kind of thing. And that became uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> it, with hindsight, I say I was deconstructing. I, I already had a, you know, an expansive, graceful uh, interpretation of scripture, but it became more liberalized. It became more open. Uh, LGBTQ issues started to really, like I knew there was something wrong there. I had to, like I had, I cared about people uh, more than, more than the judgment there. And near the end, I did another read through the Bible, uh, probably the third or fourth time in my lifetime, over a year, a structured, you know, daily reading. And my wife uh, would say, you know, you're, you're angry. Why are you angry? <laughs> and I realized now that it was kind of the first time I had really read through without a rose-colored grace perspective and just read, what does the text say? And man, there's some dark elements of, of, the, of the Bible. And I was, re I was feeling that for the first time. And then I think I reached a point where I would say, referring to like uh, Descartes, you know, the sense of God, the, the, uh, the just, you know, I had a sense of God and I could not deny that, even though I had all these doubts surrounding it, everything, I, I just couldn't let go of that. And it was finally reading a Greta Christina article. It was a blog post about why are these, these atheists so mad? And it was, you know, a list of like, I don't know, 20 things. And it was about the abuse of the church and the, the misuse of of uh, scripture and that hurt people. Long story short, I, I realized I agreed with everything she said there. And then I read a couple more things and it the two things that the last things that I was holding on to were my sense of a soul that, you know, that I had a soul and the, and the resurrection and the, the an article from Greta Christina convinced me that, you know, I'm my body, my body is me. I don't, I don't think I have a soul that I don't think that there is something other than the physical me. And then rapidly after that, you know, why do I believe in the resurrection? Well, I believe that because people told me and, and there's this regression from the people who told me all the way back down to, to Jesus. And it's like, this is all hearsay. And it just fell apart. Just, you know, and I have a, a really good podcast friend named Matthew Taylor. And I think he says it beautifully. He says, I suddenly uh, realized I could no longer believe, but that suddenly refers to my recognition, not the process. The process was those years, the whole 20, right? Uh, but the recognition was just instantaneous. And it was just like, I'm an atheist. Oh shit. What do I do now? 
That was that was my experience. Yeah, I, I think I, I definitely connect with a lot of what you're saying. I mean, I, I don't identify as an atheist. I actually have no idea what I am. Um, I'm certainly not a Christian, certainly not a believer in Jesus, mm-hmm. but I, I'm not sure where to sit some of my things because I still feel this sense of spirituality of, of something else, which I had before I came to Christianity. It was something, and I didn't grow up in a spiritual home. I'd never been to a church, um, essentially. You know, I dropped in with a couple of mates to the obligatory Catholic service that they had to go to for Christmas or Easter. But I don't, I don't know. So I, I went through a very, very similar process to you. It took a, a long time. I was, I was fighting the denial. I was fighting because I didn't. It was fear. If I let go of this then what do I hang on to? Because this is the thing that brought me in first. But I, I so identify with the stuff that you're saying around around grace, around love, about acceptance. And just that that is something that I think I, I definitely hang on to now. And I don't use those labels necessarily of, of grace and forgiveness or whatever as liberally as I may have, but I, I try and live those. I think yeah. they're such an incredibly important part of being a human and connecting with others and making the world a better place. But when you got to that point of realisation where you went, oh, fuck, I've got to let it go, Yeah, how did that sit with you? Was there a fear or was it a freedom? Uh, both. Uh, so the the other part of my story is that that my wife is still very much a believer. So the fear was, oh my God, am I going to lose her? <laughs> uh, you know, I I realize it took me about three months to tell her. In that three months, I was reading voraciously, just you know anything I could get my hands on. What does this all mean? Uh, and at the time, you know, that meant the Four Horsemen, a couple of humanist uh, books, but. Uh, you know, with hindsight, I would have loved some other books. I have other recommendations for, <laughs> and then, then the night that I told her, I knew, you know, I'm, I'm sticking the knife in and twisting it. Like, like I'm hurting her, uh, but I have to be honest with her. I can't, I couldn't live a lie. I had to tell her. I focused on the fact that I loved her. I loved her, whether she believes, whether she doesn't. And it tried to convey that to her, that I wasn't going anywhere, that, that I wanted to be a part of this relationship. So there was a lot of fear there. We can talk about this later, but like, you know, we, we have made it work. There is some tension there, but we care for each other. And it's kind of an act of volition that we choose to be with one another. But the freedom, <laughs> Brian, of it felt like I was spinning the plates of faith to, to, to keep it all together, all the, all the cognitive dissonance, all of the, all of the doubt, all of the things. And I was holding it together by force of will and letting it go. The irony is that it felt like a born again experience. I I often say the scales fell from my eyes. It is literally <laughs> seeing the world in a completely different way. And intellectually, it was absolute freedom. And I, I you know, I could never go back because I can't unsee what I have seen. Uh, and to just put a bow on this, I've I've come to really rest in, really relax about. There are things that we don't know. There are, you know, there are questions that may not have answers. And I would rather, to quote Feynman, I would rather have questions without answers than, than answers that can't be questioned. And, and like, I'm just comfortable there. Uh, and I also was just comfortable saying, you know, I, I have a scientific uh, view of the world and I'm just going to 
I'm just going to say, I'm just going to assert that I need a certain amount of uh, empirical evidence to believe something. And that uh, I've, I'm just really comfortable with that. And that's been really uh, useful uh, in the time period we are in, uh, not just in the religious context, but politically, geopolitically, <laughs> uh, the disinformation and misinformation that's out there. Uh, it has served me quite well. I've got a couple of questions for you, David. So are you saying that your wife is still a Christian today? Yes, she is. Yes. So how does she handle that her husband is a quite famous podcaster <laughs> known as the Graceful Atheist? How yeah. does she handle this? Uh, so again, there's tension, right? Like I, I don't want to sugarcoat this at all. Um, I, I, I try to, when we, when, we, when we hit this dead on, I, I try to say, you know, I support her. I encourage her to go to church. I encourage her to have her spiritual community uh, and that in a, some way, this is similar for me, right? This is my outlet, connecting with other people who have been through the deconstruction process. And I, I don't like the term spiritual, actually, because, but like, for lack of a better term, that is my spiritual outlet. So there is an uneasy detente, right? Like, I wouldn't say that it's, that anyone's, I'm, I'm okay. Like, I don't think she's happy with it. And I don't know that she understands exactly how big this, the podcast has become. We also have a, an online community. I know you guys also do also. Uh, but I'm just continually amazed at there's almost an infinite supply of people coming through who are where I was, you know, when I started out. And I'm sure where you guys were, where you just, you don't even know what the word deconstruction means or deconversion. And, and you're just trying to figure out what has just happened to me? What do I do now? And that's kind of the target of the the podcast is a bit of what now? What do you, what do you do now? And not a focus on the, the anger and the debate and the hostility, but rather, uh, you know, you might have relationships with people who are people of faith still. Do you want to keep those? If you do, how, you know, how do you go about that? That kind of thing. So that's been the focus of the podcast and the community. It's interesting, David, because hearing that your wife doesn't really listen to your podcast, my wife was never a Christian and doesn't listen to my podcast yeah. either. So, so maybe yeah. that's partly a marriage thing, not yeah, just entirely <laughs> an atheist thing. But okay, I've got another question for you and sorry to yeah. harp on this, but I just, I, I know that our audience is going to be really interested in this. What about the kids? Yeah. Yes. Because I'm watching what's happening in our community as well, the, the two main issues are unequally yoked relationships and and how do you how do you raise children? First of all, I need to say how amazing my wife is. Like the this would not work if if she wasn't an equal partner in this. Uh, so I've seen relationships where it's sad, but maybe maybe that relationship does need to end. So it isn't necessarily the case that you have to make it work at all costs in the way that we might think that within the Christian world, right? My wife is also, I would say she's theologically conservative, but not politically so. So she has grieved the last six, seven years uh, of what we've seen on the world stage that does not represent her. And so we shared a lot of values and, and, and that's what I try to focus on is the, the values that we share. Obviously, uh, kids have the, they are brilliant at finding <laughs> the weak spots it <laughs> you know to their advantage and they have done so brilliantly and that has often caused tension obviously we've discussed purity culture here uh, i've i've been fortunately we both were very kind of matter of fact about sexuality and you know their bodies as they were growing up you know i took it 
steps further to say, hey, you need to practice safe sex and this is where you can you can get condoms. This is where you could get birth control. You know, my wife has has come along with that. Uh, I don't think that she's comfortable with it at all. The other thing, the other part of the story is that when I deconverted, the kids were kind of in their teenage rebellious phase anyway. <laughs> and so I think both of them are closer to agnostic uh, than anything else. I don't like to speak for them. I don't know entirely where they're at. So, so the heart of your question, Troy, is, you know, for sure, tent, lots and lots of tension uh, and, and, and arguments. But there was enough shared values. There was enough uh, shared sense of we love our kids. We want to parent them as a team and, working, and attempting to work with one another to raise the kids. So how did your mother sit with this? Because she was your reason to convert. H- how did that all land? My mother died about eight months after I deconverted. And I did not tell her, which is also really common. You, 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 well, you might not be surprised, but <laughs> some people would be surprised. You know, I have, we've got people within the community that haven't told their spouses. This happens more often than you think. So I drug my feet knowing that that was going to hurt her. And, and she died suddenly, uh, unexpectedly. So, I, you know, when I reflect back on it, I'm torn. You know, would it have been better for me to tell her? Probably. Uh, we had a very complicated relationship. The rest of my mom's story is that she was clean and sober for 10 years and then went back to the, the drugs in particular. And, and so that was rough. <laughs> Those 20 years that I just blew over were, uh, were rough as far as my relationship with my mom. So that was complicated. I'll tell you the hardest person to tell uh, was an aunt of mine on my dad's side. And she and I, the, my dad's side of the family is very Catholic. And she and I were the evangelicals in that side of the family. And so we were, you know, really bonded over that. And so a couple of years into the, de- the deconversion, I told my aunt and that was, that was hard. She, and she was very good about it. She handled it well, but I really felt like I was breaking this, this woman's heart, you know? And so that was, that was challenging. Yeah, that is, that's, that is a rough journey. And so how, how long ago, just to put a, a bit of context to time, what would you say that point was, how long ago was it you deconverted that you would say you had your born again experience? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't remember the exact day, but it was June of 2015. Like I, I remember it strong enough to, to remember that. So we could say that you've been on prayer chains for about seven years because there'd yeah, be many probably. people <laughs> pray, praying for your soul. Probably. <laughs> yes. Praying for your soul and some of them would have been praying against your soul. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Especially being a podcaster. Uh, what you said before too around um, a lot of people not telling anybody when we spoke to Bart Campolo uh, I don't know when it was maybe last year he talked about that that his time in ministry that there was a lot of big name pastors who were up there leading very large churches who were no longer believers they couldn't tell people because that was their life and um, so I, I completely get that I mean I became a, a Christian when I was 17 and then my mum actually became one after me so it was a bit of a, a weird experience but I'm sure that many Pentecostals relate to that sort of thing but I deconverted I you know don't identify as Christian she still does she's 85 nearly 86 I don't have the conversation with her we we avoid it she as far as I know knows about the podcast but she's never brought it up with me yeah but I, I would be part of the um Baptocostal prayer chain that she's part of. I have no doubt about that one. So tell us about 2015. 
that's that's the timeline. The last seven years, what's happened and how did you get to The Graceful Atheist? How did the podcast start? Has it evolved? I mean, you you did say before, you know, it's it's a very popular podcast. You're in the top 1% of all podcasts across the globe. Like that's that's enormous. So how did you get to that? How did how did this evolve? Yeah, so I, I hinted at it when I, you know, talked about the books that I read at the time. Uh, you know, I feel like we went through these waves uh, post nine uh, eleven. You know, we have the the new atheists, and and I think the focus then was the shock and awe of just uh, you know there are no sacred cows, and and being able to say out loud what probably many people were experiencing privately. And I think there was then a backlash to that, right? You know, you can't just kind of be an asshole to people all the time. <laughs> and, uh, and I feel like we're in this second or even third wave kind of after that. Uh, and so in 2015, I was looking around, you know, mostly online, mostly on Twitter, mostly on YouTube, and everything was res- responding to apologists, right? It was, it was very debate heavy, very... Uh, sometimes I say hyper-rationalist, right? And I mean, I'm, I love philosophy, right? Like I, I, I absolutely love it. So I get it. I'm drawn to that. I was drawn to theology as a Christian. I'm drawn to, to philosophy, but there very, very quickly, I felt like, okay, yes, but now what? <laughs> right? Like, you know, I read the books. I, you know, watched the, the, the YouTube videos, uh, you know, all right, I'm already convinced of this. So now what, what do we do now? And uh, you know, so I tried to find more humanist perspectives. I'll just mention here that, you know, again, with hindsight, I would say that I was a religious hu- humanist while I was a Christian. That's kind of what I was doing with that focus on grace, was focusing on people. Uh, and now I'm a secular humanist. So, uh, you know, about a, about a year in or so, I start to have an online presence. I was fascinated by podcasts. I thought, man, this is such an intimate way to communicate. I tried to get on a few. I was on uh, Voices of Deconversion with Steve Hilker, uh, which was a really positive, kind of cathartic experience. The first time I really told my story beginning to end uh, in, you know, in public, quote unquote. And I thought, man, this, this is really powerful. I started a blog. I, I tried a few things with some, some YouTube friends and nothing felt quite right. And I finally thought, I can't be the only one who wants to talk about, you know, kind of the full human experience of this process. It's not just about the intellectual bits. It's also about the, we mentioned fear that there's, uh, there's what I've now learned. People experience deep trauma, deep trauma from the process, from what they went through. And now they're trying to, to become free from. And I just wanted to focus on the whole person and, the other thing that I noticed was that it was incredibly male dominated, incredibly white male dominated. And I wanted to just be as open as possible to everyone as, as much as possible. I, I, I joke that, you know, this was my cognitive bias. I thought, you know, there must be people that are like me that would respond to the thing that I would have wanted when I went through my deconversion in 2015. So started the podcast, barely anyone knew who I was. You know, I had a handful of connections on on Twitter, and I just started to bring people in. And at first, I thought I was going to do what everyone else does, which is, you know, you you interview famous secular people, you occasionally interview uh, an apologist, what have you. And I'm really thankful that that isn't what happened. What happened is I almost the first first two 
episodes were people telling their deconversion stories. And I very quickly saw the, the power of that. It was something really positive for me to be the receiver of their story. And I could tell how cathartic it was for them in the same way that it was cathartic for me to tell my story. And so I knew that that was kind of going to be the focus of the podcast. And I think the most important thing that somebody who finds themselves in that questioning phase, they're not out yet, they may barely know what deconstruction means, is to hear that they're not alone. They are not crazy. They, they, many, many people have gone through the same thing they have. And the wide spectrum of experiences, so from Catholic, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Baptist, independent fundamentalists, what, what have you, like the, the broad range of experiences, including more progressive Christian Christianity, somebody has been interviewed on the, on the podcast and you can hear your story as they're telling it. And so that was the magic of it. That was the thing I thought uh, was unique. I, I was acutely aware in the beginning that if I had started to do harder, you know, response podcasts against apologists that I probably could have had an audience quicker. It's been a very linear, slow, steady growth. Uh, I, I consciously made that decision. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to stick to this vision of secular grace and deconversion stories and see if, see if there's an audience out there. It really was kind of an experiment. Are there people who, who are interested in this? And apparently there were. Did you get much pushback from the atheist scene, calling yourself the graceful atheist and taking that approach? No, not that I'm aware of. Uh, so again, I, I feel like I was, th- I was absolutely threading the needle. I was, I was kind of irritating both sides a little bit <laughs> by taking the term grace from Christianity. I think there was some resistance there. And then, you know, grace is, is often ridiculed by, by atheists and rightly so, right? This idea of substitutionary atonement is, is a horrific idea and, and it's rightly criticized. I've been pushed often to really clarify what I mean by that secular grace. Uh, and it is much more about one-to-one. Imagine your best friend. You, you, know, you can pretty much tell that person anything. You don't have to edit yourself. You don't have to uh, worry about the words that you use. You can just, or tone police yourself. You can just tell them what you're feeling. That's secular grace. That's what I'm trying to, to, to talk about. It is not forgiving people for doing terrible things. All right? It is not that substitutionary idea, right? And it's not, there's no vertical aspect here, no spiritual aspect. It is human beings being good and kind uh, and loving to one another. So again, from an audience point of view, that was very slow going. I think, you know, I didn't immediately have a ton of people, a ton of, you know, it wasn't necessarily something that all the atheists uh, wanted to join. Flip, the flip side of that is everybody and their uncle was doing, you know, progressive Christian three, three ex-pastors and beers. Uh, you know, that, that was what everyone was doing. And I didn't want to do that either. I, I am, I am an atheist. I am a metaphysical naturalist. I'm a, I'm a humanist. That's the perspective of the podcast. So I knew it was a super narrow slice that I was hitting. I, I will say that as time went on, I wanted to put my money where my mouth was when I said I was open to having people come on who were still questioning. I've had many people come on who are still, still Christians, still believers, uh, you know, deconstructing on one level or another. And I'm not there to correct them. I'm not there to tell them they should be an atheist. I'm there to just hear their story, right? And, and I still think that's the magic. I still think that's powerful. And again, about a year and a half ago, a year or so, we started an online community, which I was really resistant to do because I had watched 
these communities kind of rise up and 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 implode <laughs> on themselves and multiple times over over the seven year period. And I didn't want to just devolve into anti-Christian memes and ranting. And so what's happened is just beautiful. I have an amazing community manager named Arlene and she's running things, but we've set the tone. So yes, you can come in and vent, uh, but also you need to be respectful because there are going to be Christians in there who are questioning as well. And it's worked. I, I'm amazed. Every day I'm amazed. But like, you know, someone will come in and they'll post and they'll say, ah, I've got to, I have to talk to my mom. She's really pressuring me to take the kids to church and I don't want to. Have you ever experienced that? And 20 people respond and go, oh yeah, this is what I had to do. And like, again, that's much more powerful than whatever I can do with a podcast, right? It's just recognizing that you're not alone is, is super, super valuable. Yeah, it's, it's in, we both really identify with that because I think we've tried to take that same flavor with the podcast and we have pissed people off on either end of the spectrum. So we've had the angry atheists coming in going, God, you, you guys just leave way too much room for, for, for thinking, essentially, <laughs> um, or for having conversation. Yeah. And then you have the, even the more progressive Christians going, you guys can't say that. It's like, well, yeah, we can because that's our opinion. But our online community is the same. It's it's a it's quite a large community these days, over oh, it's about eight hundred or so people, and the exact same thing. We've actually had to remove a few people, um, which is an uncomfortable thing because we we think about people were removed from church, and that's not demonstrating grace. But in the same way, there's been some people who. It quite you know, the way that I guess they process stuff has been damaging to others and hurtful to others and hasn't created a safe environment for people to have those conversations about, hey, my partner's still a Christian or my kids aren't Christians, but by God, they've just been asked to come along to Hillsong or something like that. So and it's the same thing. We have a community where people support each other. We have a lot of people coming to us and saying, you know, you've created an environment where I actually feel heard, I feel accepted, I don't feel that my questioning is is something that is going to damn me to an eternal hell, you know, you guys. So, and I'm sure you find the exact same thing. But it is niche. I think it is a place that many people fear to go because it does create an environment where you're not giving absolute certainty and people look for absolute certainty, which I think, in this environment, we've seen conspiracists come out and people latch onto it because they're giving them certainty about something that might not necessarily be something you can give certainty about. It's it's a it's a weird environment, isn't it? For sure, I think you know part of why I don't I'm not aware of any atheists who were angry with me is that I just ignore that. <laughs> but it is it, that's kind of the exact thing I was trying to avoid. I wanted to make sure that we weren't just replicating what had already been done. And again, I think, you know, I think we've been reasonably uh, successful at that. We said the same thing when we started. It was like, we don't want to do an angry atheist podcast because there's, there's enough of those. And, and I'm not saying they don't, they don't play a part. They, they do. And they, and they often speak a lot of, a lot of truth. I can remember in the early days of the, what you called the four horsemen or the new atheists. Um, and for the sake of our audience, I think maybe we should sort of define that there were four authors, four speakers in particular. There was Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, uh, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. 
And uh, I got right into those guys back in the the early noughties um, and in, into the mid noughties. And you, you were right. After a while, it just became a really bitter place to be. And we interviewed Elle Hardy, who wrote a book on Pentecostalism. And she said that when she got into the New Atheists, after a little while, she felt like she needed to pay some penance and started to write a book on Pentecostalism because there was there was an angriness, you know, there was an anger, there was a there was a fury almost. And yeah. I can remember when I started to sort of wake up from that and say, oh, you know, as much as I agree with almost everything that was written in The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, I don't like the way he belittles people. And I got pushback from other friends going, oh, you know, as if I was betraying atheism yeah. or as if I was betraying my own deconversion by saying, well, let's keep moving forward with this. So I hear you. And that's why I I really identify with the with the fact that you called your podcast The Graceful Atheist. And, and I can see what you're trying to achieve. And, and I think it's wonderful. So kudos to you, David. Well, thank you. Yeah. Who are the, some of those guests? I mean, you've obviously, you've had a raft of guests, but who are, who are some of those ones that stick in your mind and why? What is it that you've learned from them, that you've connected with them? Tell us about those. You know, again, the focus of the podcast has not been famous secular people, but I'll mention just a couple. Uh, my favorites, uh, Jennifer Michael Hecht wrote a book called Doubt, a History. And what I love about that book and what Jennifer is communicating is that none of this is new. That as long as there have been believers, there have been doubters. The book is a beautiful kind of crash course in the history of philosophy. And she does this brilliant thing where... You know, it's the, the winners write history, and that's often the theistic view. And she's looking at the negative impression, basically what the theists were arguing against to bring out what the secular argument was at the time. So it's a brilliant book. Uh, I loved chatting with her. I also, you know, you mentioned Dawkins just a second ago. I often say I'm more of a Carl Sagan atheist than, than a Dawkins atheist. So having uh, Sasha Sagan on, she wrote a book called uh, Small Creatures Such As We. Uh, which basically takes the premise that uh, even as secular people, we need ritual or you know common collective community events to mark off time, things like birthdays and funerals and uh, marriages. These are these are community moments, and that we shouldn't ditch the the ritual that we need as as human beings uh, just because we're secular. And I thought that was that was uh, brilliant. Uh, I also got a chance to talk to Bart Campolo. Uh, I feel like of the famous people, he's probably the closest to what I'm trying to to communicate. I, as a Christian, loved Tony Campolo, his dad. I think he had a very graceful attitude. Uh, and obviously, Bart carries that into the secular world. And I loved his both his book and the video that he and his father did where they're talking to one another. And you can, especially as a deconvert, you you can hear... Uh, Tony, his dad, his dad, you know, the, the, you can hear the cognitive dissonance, right? Uh, and, and Bart is being incredibly patient with him and, you know, walk, walk, trying to walk him through it, through it. And uh, anyway, I think that's just that one. That, that was wonderful. But as far as things I've learned, I think the, the, the most critical thing that I've learned is how easy I had it. I came into it my late teens. I was pretty much an adult. I had a sense of self. I had had sex already. I, you know, so the purity culture was damaging, but not, not traumatizing. I was a white male in a patriarchal uh, system. I did very well. 
Uh, so many of the stories that I hear now are particularly of people who grew up in it, you know, being taught hell at five, six years old. It just feels like child abuse. A lot of the millennials having gone through their sexual awakening uh, during the purity culture of the 90s with uh, Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, and they are damaged. They are hurt. So real trauma, right, in a way that, that wasn't my personal experience. So the many stories of the people who, who come on to, to tell their story, you know, LGBTQ, just you know, the whole broad spectrum of the human experience, uh, the black nonbelievers where you know, they're a minority of a minority. Again, things that are not my experience. I've learned a lot uh, through this process of just listening to people tell their stories from their perspective and their experience. You learn not to be an asshole, essentially, yeah. when you hear, don't you? You hear people's experiences and you go, fuck, because it's the same. You know, we're two white males in a patriarchal society, yeah. you know. So it's it. We, we have had an easy ride and we've heard a lot from women that we've interviewed about their experience, not only of purity culture, but of being a servant in church, essentially. A lack of autonomy, yes. Oh, absolutely. And are told that that's freedom. You've got freedom in Christ, but come here, come here uh, mind the kids, do any of those very female-oriented or appointed roles, and uh, and you'll be okay. Just don't step outside that. And and you do certainly see within more modern megachurches that that's painted up a little bit, a bit of lipstick on the pig, and uh, you do see women up front more. But you very rarely, if ever, see a woman leading a megachurch or leading something that that has some sort of fame attached to it. The guys will always jump onto that. So we we have had it easy, and we've got to realise that that it's not um it's not something that we are as damaged by. But there are some very damaging elements to it. I mean, there's a lot of people who came into it. I, I came into the church at seventeen with a bit of a damaged sense of self, and I think the church gave me a sense of self, which I had to strip away. It it helped at the time, and I think it helped anchor me as a, as a human who was you know going through some shit, but I had to strip that away because um, I think they built me up with a sense of self that was built around the church and within that bubble. So it's, a, it's something that we've all got to work through, but certainly nothing compared to a lot of minority groups that you talk about. We've, we've interviewed people who've gone through gay conversion therapy and told that the person they are is not a person that, that God likes or even comes close to loving unless, well, he loves them conditionally. Otherwise, he's going to send them to an eternal hell. Uh, so, you know, we have had it easy. Yeah, and I think it depends on where you're based as well. Like I was talking to a couple of people at work the other day and he he's Chinese, the guy I was talking to, and, and he said that he went to a mega church in Texas and he said we were the only Asian people there. Whereas I think if you were at a mega church, maybe in California, you'd probably find there's quite a, and, and it's, I, I know for a fact, there's a lot of, you know, Chinese churches in, in California. So it really depends on, on where you are, but it did, it did stand out to me when we spoke to the two women from Cheers to Leaving podcast that I said to them, and it was really funny because I, I left church in 1999, so it's been a really long time, but to actually stop and go, wow, listening to their story, there must've been women in our church that were feeling that way too. And that was sort of like a realization that my experience was not the same experience as the women who were standing right next to me at the time. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a theme that came through. Uh, I've, I, I, off the top of my head, I can think of like 
four or five interviews I've done where within three minutes of listening to a woman uh, tell her story, you realize this person is a leader, right? She's, <laughs> that is, that is her skill set. She's, you know, she has great knowledge and great communication skills and, and leadership skills. And then, and then she will go on to talk about how she was limited to children's ministry and limited to, you know, non-speaking roles. <laughs> uh, and it, you just think, what an incredible waste of talent that, uh, you know, that has taken place here. So David, coming to the end of our time, how do people connect with you and your podcast? I mean, I'm assuming you're on all the, all the platforms, but are yeah. there other ways, you know, how, how do they find your support group, et cetera? Sure. Yeah. I'll do the support group first. Uh, that It's called Deconversion Anonymous. Uh, you can search for it on Facebook, but it's also at just facebook.com slash groups slash deconversion. I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, so you can Google Graceful Atheist, Google Secular Grace. That's going to hit my my blog that has links to everything. The podcast is on all the major platforms and you should be able to find that. Uh, and then I have been on Twitter. Uh, we I know we're going through a time right now. We'll see if Twitter survives over the next uh, couple of months here. But uh, at Graceful Atheist there as well. So you can reach out to me there. What's next for the podcast? David, it, it, do you take it in a different direction? Do you continue where you're going? The, I think this year, 2022, was uh, more open to more progressive Christians, more, uh, you know, a little bit of more in that questioning phase. We have an opportunity to potentially become a part of a uh, podcast network that is atheist and humanist focused uh, that might lead to a few more quote unquote famous people, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, of that, that I, that I haven't done in the past. So, so we'll see, but, uh, you know, honestly, guys, you know, more of the same, it's, it's, I still feel like, I still feel every time I do one of these interviews that it is the power of the regular person telling their story that is that that's what everyone else is relating to. Uh, and that's what people find, uh, fascinating. Yeah, there's a power in in letting people know that they're not alone, yeah. and and that their story resonates, and that they're not isolated. I think it's um it's something that we've learned. It's something that's happened with us as well. And we'll be talking about stories. We've heard your story today. We're also going to uh, be on your podcast. Uh, this is the crossover episode, but with a gap. We're going to run ours uh, late November, whereas yours will come out early 2023. But I think. It doesn't matter. It's just about um, giving a voice to others and also, most importantly, an opportunity for people to connect and know they're not alone and and know that their experience is validated. So we want to thank you today for the conversation. It's been a great conversation. Again, it's good to hear people's stories. It's also great to hear because we know that within our community, there are people who fit the 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 unequally yoked um, yes. <laughs> label. Um, there are there's people with us that their partners don't necessarily know that they're deconverted or deconverting. They're they're coming to our community as a safe space to do that. So to know that that can work, to know that there's a roadmap which has worked for you may not always be transferable, but someone has done it before. So people will connect with that. So. Thank you so much. I think it's, it's again, it's the power of connection. It's the power of story. It's the power of podcasting. Yeah, that's right. Thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Excellent. So, Brian, I'll see you in a fortnight. That's 14 nights, Troy. <laughs> <laughs>